The Low Post is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast on a Thursday morning where this feels like the first sort of nervous night, really, of the second round of the playoffs. And and when you think about it, you know, first round is fine, but it's the stakes aren't that high. Tonight is Bucks. Nets, an absolute must win for the Bucks, or else it's Armageddon on a number of levels there. And then Clippers, Jazz, and it it feels like the Clippers pulling the four and five thing again, even though these first two games we win at Utah, not at the semi-empty Staples Center. It just feels a little improbable. So big, big games tonight. We won't talk much about those games because they're tonight, and so there's no point in talking about them. But we're going to talk about other stuff with one of my favorite guests. A long time since I've had him on, Mr. Kevin Arnovitz. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. You think the Bucks pull this off tonight? I think maybe. I think possibly, likely. Um, it's been really disappointing, Zach. I, I don't have a problem with teams kind of losing their playing the best or even semi decent versions of themselves. But I don't like it when they're unrecognizable and 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 they do what they do. Just makes you sad, huh? Just emotionally makes me sad. Um. They, this is a team that generally problem solves on the fly. They know how to get shots within the framework of their offense, and it just hasn't looked like that at all. I have no idea what's going to happen tonight. Um, it just – your tendency is to react to the most recent thing that you saw, and the most recent thing that I saw was the Bucks just getting danced on and clowned and pooping on the floor, and it was just bad. Um, and then Clippers Jazz, I'll tell you – that was a game where you really could see the freshness difference. Like, the the Jazz in the first quarter were playing at a different speed than the Clippers. They were shot out of a can, and the Clippers were like, oh, my God, the passing, the movement, Donovan Mitchell's flying all around. They ground they, The Clippers eventually grinded the game back down to the way they want to play, but just the speed differential worries me for the Clippers. Utah is so well choreographed right now. And, and I was a little worried because I, I felt like I don't think people realize how much structure Conley really affords that offense and just what it allows everyone else to do that it is sort of this, this found like that pick and roll is the foundation of everything. They can run it a lot of different ways. There are all component parts. There are so many counters out of it. Um, And I was a little nervous because I thought Conley, you know, I thought the absence was bigger than I, than I think many anticipated. And um, they're really good and people have to get to, get used to the idea that they're really good, that they it's have about 17 they're, different ways they can beat you offensively and about three or four really solid ways they can beat you defensively. Game one was a reminder of just two things. Number one, yes, Donovan Mitchell is ready to be the bucket getter that they need one team switch, like the Clippers are going to do playing super small. And number two, even if the Clippers switch everything, the Jazz have gotten so good at continuing to just run their stuff just faster with more slipped screens, with more counters that they are not like cowed at all by, oh my God, they're switching everything. That's death for our sort of fun blender machine. We're going to keep running the blender. We're just going to run it so fast and make our reads so fast that we're going to be ahead of your switching. It was really, really impressive. We'll see. Um, We'll see what happens in game two. And by the way, Donovan Mitchell, you know, 
I guess it, it just shouldn't be surprising that he can be the bucket getter, even though he's 6'1", and his jumper has been a little inconsistent throughout his career better this year. Like, this is how they beat the Thunder in his rookie year. They just found, like, what he did to Luke Kennard at, down the stretch of Game 1 is what he did to Carmelo Anthony over and over and over again until the Thunder could not play Carmelo Anthony in that series. It's 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 He is that guy. Like, it's time to start talking about Donovan Mitchell as one of those guys, and uh, we'll see what happens in game two, though. I don't. I, that's the one, like, I don't know what the hell is going to happen in that series. With the, the Clippers could play, you know, the Globetrotters, and I wouldn't have any feel for what was going to be, what was going to happen in their games. No, and I, I'm actually really curious to see what they do about the size question. And I, 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 I think there's more available to them <laughs> than, than was tapped into um, the other night. And I'm really curious to see. You know, I think Kennard is is sort of a useful excuse to a kind of a larger structural question of what they want to do defensively, schematically. Like, like Kennard kind of personifies the problem, but he isn't the problem in and of itself. I, I don't know if you say, all right, give Kennard fewer minutes. You know, don't let them play pick on against Luke Kennard. I don't necessarily think that solves anything. And I think I'm really curious to see how they formulate a strategy against just a really, really, really complete pick and roll machine. And, and because I think it's going to, I think they're going to have to, they're going to have to do a lot, seven or eight different things over the course of the next five or seven games. And, and just their rotation. I'm, I'm curious who yeah. they play tonight. I was surprised they didn't play man at all in the second half. Beverly can't make a shot. Uh, I expected him to play. I don't know if he'll play in game two. I suspect they'll try him again. Anyway, let's talk about Sixers Hawks because you're on that series, and right now it is a 1-1 series. The Hawks come in, steal home court in Game 1, and then Philly changes the defensive assignments, puts a combination of Simmons and Tybal, which is like, that's like, that's like facing, I don't even know what that's like. That's that's just not even fair that you can put the put those guys on Trey Young. Um, and Joel Embiid continues to go bananas. It's 1-1 going to Atlanta. We have a couple of days off here. What's What's... What's something, you know, both teams have punched and punched back. What's something X's and O wise, adjustment wise for either team that your first possession of game three, okay, what are we looking at? Yeah, I'm curious to see how it, how Atlanta now deals with the fact that Philly is going to commit size to Trey, right? I mean, the thing, and it's not, it seems obvious, except that it wasn't, right? Because if it were obvious, Danny Green wouldn't have drawn the first game assignment, but like, like size bothers Trey a little, and, and you the way you know you can see it is you'll see the way he'll loop a pass over his right shoulder to Capella or Collins or like that cross court pass um, to Bogdanovich or, or, or Herder um, when he's got Ben on on top of him, right? Because then it has to it is a slower read, and the ball gets delivered more slowly, and it completely disrupts the timing of of that wheel, and. I'm curious to see in terms of that double drag, which is like one of the the league's least favorite plays to defend. It is it is Collins and Capella up top for for Young. It is the engine that makes them run. You know, and they put how and, are and they, they and they they mix that up. They put Solomon Hill in there, like they'll put oh yeah. they, because he had Seth Curry on him. They'll mix up who's in there to sort of confuse you further. They they will they they work everything out of that. And the what Atlanta has to do is. Trey spent too much time going sideline to sideline. And that's how you know, I think, generally speaking, of the defense is working against Trey, right? He'll go east to west, not downhill. And I, I'm curious to see how Atlanta figures out ways. Like, it might be that Trey's like, you know what? You know, 
and I and I wrote a little bit about this the other night. Like you, you try to blow up that screen. Okay, I'm going to draw two early fouls on you. You know, I'm going to use your physical aggression against you. Um, you're going to play that that second screen a little flat to try to get me to the sideline. Uh-uh. You know, now we're going to reverse it. And I, I'm really curious to see how Trey responds and how Atlanta responds. Because, look, it, it, that is not going to change. They are going to continue to put size on Trey. He is going to have a harder time and a slower time reading um, these defensive coverages. Okay, but you you can't lose time because then rhythmically it's all off, and you see those big looping passes. And now Philly's far too good of a defensive team not to take advantage of you know, the, those sorts of the, those sorts of seconds that come back in your favor. And, and I'm just I, I can't wait to see the first six or seven you know half court possessions by Atlanta. What they do to get Trey moving back downhill, and to the extent that he is moving downhill, okay, what happens behind? You know, where is that big going to be positioned? Um, is he is he back to the float or is he just going to draw a ton? You know, there are nights where when you do take a lot away from Trey, he's just like, you know what? I- I'm just going to draw contact. I'm going to uh, I'm going to get four fouls called in the first 11 minutes. And that could be, very much be a strategy. It mucks up the game. If you're rhythmically out, if you're Atlanta, it sort of brings it back. Um, he's so good at modulating you know, the the rhythm of the game based on what the defense is doing. And I, I just I, I love watching this team now for that reason. Trey Young is a genius. And I've been guilty of sort of rolling my eyes at his foul baiting and how he sticks his butt out to draw contact. But what I've come to realize more and more is that it's just part of a larger ecosystem of Trey Young outthinking teams. So he, and, and this gets harder for him when they put these big guys on him, these bigger guys, he's just, he's got all of these little moves within a move, and all they're designed to do is broaden the space he has on either side of him when he's in the lane. So, like, you saw it particularly with Tybal in game one. There were a couple possessions where Matisse would be right on top of him, and Trey would have, have a little hesitation dribble, sort of slow down, and Tybal is so scared of picking up a mm-hmm. foul that he stops. And all of a sudden, the window behind Trey is bigger, right? And at the same time, the hesitation dribble makes Joel Embiid think, oh, he, he might be shooting a floater. So Joel Embiid takes a little half step over, and all of a sudden, the window from Trey to Capella is a little more open. Then you close that, and he has another little hesitation dribble that maybe pulls Embiid another step to the side. It's all part of this larger Trey Young. Those windows in front of him and behind him, the more open they are, obviously the more effective he is. And the fear of the foul that he has instituted now, and he's instilled this fear in everyone. The moment he slows down at all, you see these defenders, oh boy, hands up, back up, and then that window is open. It's a really genius sort of step-by-step-by-step long-term manipulation like over weeks and months of how players guard him. And But to your point, you could see him in game two. He feels the pressure. He feels the size. So even when he would open those windows, he now knows they're not as open as I think they are because it's either Simmons behind me or Matisse Thibel who is like a phantom. Like he's, he's just... I don't even know. It feels like there are two of him on the floor. And Embiid's in front of him, and Embiid is terrifying. And you could see him 
open pockets of space in which it's normally over. Like if he opens that much space, it's a floater. It's it's over, and he would pause and just say, "Ooh, I, do I have as much space as I think?" And in though in those pauses, Philly yeah. wins the possession. You you're trying to the goal of Trey is not to kind of conventionally stop him. You're trying to slow the read, right? Because that that's everything you're talking about. That is him reading instantaneously what is available at a given moment and because it's basketball and it's the most beautiful sport in the world what is available changes nanosecond to nanosecond it's like it's like those ads you now see for the second spectrum sort of like the way the percentage kind of throwing stats aside what that's about is is like basketball is never constant right like literally nanosecond and nanosecond the advantages change in different angles spaces everything you just said right and so you just want to slow the read against trey because he's a speed reader that's what the guy is he's a speed reader and he's seeing everything and and again it's so counterintuitive exactly what you say right like like a very reliable strategy against a lot of point guards is to just blow up the screen right like that would be the ben simmons tack against most things the thing about trey is is he's sort of he's the evil genius right oh okay like like if you blow up the screen like i'm going to use that collision against you and with trey you almost want to force him to the screen right and and then maybe trail off him as as Matisse does right at the right moment, right? And it's it's just it is so much fun to watch. I mean, it is kind of bringing joy back to half court basketball. Um, it's kind of like watching you know Chris Paul in a different way. Just there there are certain surgeons within the half court at the point guard position that are just just make it just is is worth paying to see. Uh, I can't wait. This is my favorite series for this reason. I mean, I think Utah. Uh, Clippers has maybe become more at stake, and obviously the, the Bucks nets we thought was going to be the finals before the finals. But this, to me, from a chess match, like th- this is the geek series. I liked that, you know, one, Philly was smart, I thought, mixing it up a little bit in, in mm-hmm. game two. And one thing I like is uh, when Capella sets a screen really high, like 35 feet away, they'll bust out a trap occasionally. And I think if you're going to trap, that's the time to trap. Because he's so far from the rim that he almost has to pass to Capella, who then has to make a play in space. And in the first game, he made a play. He also tra- he didn't get called for a travel. He took a little skippity hoppity. What is what is uh, Jerry Reynolds say? Hippity hop to the barber shop. He took a little hippity hop to the barber shop and didn't get called for it. Um, and, or he has to throw the lob passes from such a long distance that Philly's defenders behind the play can go get it. In the air, so I thought that was smart. In terms yeah. of how, I mean, do you it, though? I mean, I, I don't know that I want to extend the defense. Not, not only on when this, only when the screens are that high, and only if you don't do it every time. If you're just opportunistic, like now, do it now, and beads, blah, blah blah blah. I am curious to see. You know, there are some obvious ways to help Trey through that size, right? You can use him more off the ball, and I think to his credit, particularly against the Knicks series, he was willing to to do stuff off the ball while Bogdanovich handled the ball, and Bogdanovich is just a killer in the playoffs. Even he would set – Trey would be the back screener in those Spain pick and rolls and then flare out. You could do screen the screener stuff so he has a head start. You know, you hit Capella's guy with a pick. I even wonder – I thought Phoenix, for instance, last night in blowing away Denver, I think one of the really smart little things they did was we're going to take Mikhail Bridges from the corner – and we're going to make him an active part of our game plan and have him set screens for Booker and and Paul that you don't expect. And it's going to be a wrinkle that you weren't prepared for, and it's going to cause some confusion. We're not going to do it a lot. We're just going to dial his role 10% that way. I think you could do that with some of their wings. Like set some herder 
ball screen. Set some Bogdanovich ball. Just see what they do. Just mix up the, the people who are in the play. By the way, I wonder if the Hawks ever get to a point where they'll just start Herder because well, and they they need to and for this reason I think to your point I want as many ball handlers and guys who can generate quick secondary offensive actions as ball handlers and passers and playmakers right you know as possible and obviously as Bogdanovich can do that Herder can do that you know Hunter um who's now out for the postseason was starting loss, to get yeah. he was starting to get passable in that role right like yep. if the ball ended up in his hands and he had to create. Like, it, you know, earlier, you know, first year, even, you know, earlier this season, like, oh, boy, here we go, you know. Um, and, and now that's it. I mean, it's one of the problems with, you know, kind of, you know, as much as uh, I, I love the yeoman's work of Mr. Solomon Hill, uh, you, you do want as many creators who, if they become the pressure valve release, if Trey gets trapped, if the read becomes unbearably slow for him, that, okay, you get the ball out of his hands. And I'm with you. I mean, one of the things that has made Trey so much stronger is he's actually working off the ball to get it back like it it you know he would all there were times where i wouldn't say he pouted but it was just such a drag here i am off the ball you know and now it's just it's a totally different ball game for him and, and i and i and i it, 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 it's been a great thing it's not only been that it's been he's making the right play when they put two on the ball Every single thing. If you oh. bring the if you bring the defender up higher and there's two on the ball, he will make that quick pass to Herder on the wing and just say you attack it. He'll he, he's just letting the teammates make plays to keep the machine moving, and you can see that it has an empowering effect on the rest of his teammates, and it has not deflated his individual production at all. Like he's just he's made a leap within the playoffs, which is a very unusual thing. For a, for a young player um, to do. So Solomon Hill, just some numbers for you. The Sixers are minus, where do, where do I have it here? The Sixers are minus 28, I think. In, yes, minus 28 in 33 minutes with Solomon Hill on the floor. Or the Hawks, rather. I'm sorry. The Hawks are minus 28 in 33 minutes with Solomon Hill on the floor. That's not good. No. Conversely, I don't know. Conversely, it sounds like I'm a math teacher. Conversely, um, the uh, Trey Young, Herder, Bogdanovich, Collins Capella lineup, which is like good luck with that. That lineup now across the regular season and the playoffs is plus 68 in 141 minutes. It's that lineup is just brutally difficult to guard because because you got multiple guys now who can make a play off the dribble, who can create secondary offense for you. You know, the Trey Young evolution is interesting because I think you and I have had the similar experience, like listening to how like. He pisses people off. Like, like one of the interesting things, did we talk about this on an earlier podcast? Was it you or me? Like, we were talking about, like, people like, oh, he hunts assists. And my I, my thought is when an assistant coach for another team tells me, oh, young, he hunts assists. It's like, oh, you mean he willfully tries to create plays that result in baskets for other people? <laughs> like, like, like it, 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 it's, it's an odd critique. I, I know that, yeah being a stat stuffer has has certain stigmas and, and probably rightly so but i always found that was a really funny one like oh he hunts assists like i that is the objective of the game right like an assist by definition is accrued when your team scores on a possession which is kind of the stated and unstated purpose of of team basketball but um it's just been fascinating to watch his evolution and look I, i'm gonna be I'm, I'm just gonna be up front here you know like i don't use slack the reason i don't use Twitter, except in emergency situations, because I just don't like this entire technology and I'm 79 years old. But my Slack photo is Luka Doncic with a Hawks hat on for like the two minutes 
in the history of the world that Luka Doncic was an official member of the Atlanta Hawks, and it kind of broke my heart. I'm I'm an objective reporter. I'm I'm here in this capacity, but I'm still the kid who went to a lot of games at the Omni, you know, and rooted for the Hawks growing up. So there's always a part of me that died that day. And I'm telling you, like, it's becoming easier and easier. This is something I'm starting to live with. I'm starting to live with this. And, and I'm, I'm, it's becoming more and more comfortable. You know, that's, that's personal growth. I'm, pr- I'm proud of you. It sounds Thank like you. you've, 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 and we haven't even seen Reddish, who's the other piece of that trade. Right. You know, and, and basically this has been a lost season for Cam Reddish. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. With a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. Let's talk about the Sixers end of it because, you know, all year, I remember I had Spike and Mike from the rights to Ricky Sanchez on a few months ago. Oh, bless those guys, by the way. And all of us were sort of, Mike may be the least of all three of us, uh, and the Sixers, I think, were first in the East at the time. All of us were just kind of like, for reasons none of us can explain, we just don't feel that this team has the goods to get out of the East. Now, part of that was obviously Brooklyn's awesome and Milwaukee, although they have not looked awesome in the last 72 hours, is generally awesome. And just part of it is that they still feel weird and uncertain, despite the fact that Embiid has been arguably the most dominant player in the entire NBA. And my God, Clint Capella, it just has no shot. I mean, they have no chance to guard Embiid one-on-one. Nobody does, but Capella was a defense player of the year candidate, has zero chance one-on-one against Joel Embiid. Um, and, and Joel's passing out of the double teams in this series has been pretty good. You know, so he had a touch pass basically to Seth Curry in game one. I was like, wow, that was fast. Um, uh, but they still just feel – there's just something I just – I don't want to say I don't trust them. I just – it feels unformed and uncertain to me and sometimes ad hoc on offense in a way that makes me nervous to think, can they really get out of these? And I think it just comes down to Simmons. It's still it's still a thing. And look, I get – I think Chris Vernon made a great point on his podcast about this series yesterday. I get that – he took three shots in game two. Ben Simmons took three shots. Three. Okay? He's 13 of 40 at the free throw line 
for the playoffs. That's a that's a problem. Like we're officially in with Ben and Giannis. This is officially a problem. Oh, speaking of Giannis, can we just take a second? Did you see that the NBA has told the Nets to eliminate the Giannis free throw timer countdown on the Jumbotron? Did you see that? I, I did not see this. How lame is the freaking NBA? So you have a rule. Let me get this get this straight. You have a rule. You don't enforce it, except once every hundred Giannis free throws, Scott Froster is cranky and is like, now, nah, 11 seconds. You don't get to do shoot the free throw. So you have a rule. You wrote the rule. You have chosen not to enforce the rule. That's your choice. You just you let them take 15 seconds on free throws, whatever. A, a team facing them in the playoffs decides, let's have some fun with this. You won't enforce the rule. We'll get our fans to force you to enforce the rule. And the NBA, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. Now, I know they're not being punished. There's no fine. There's no anything. But they're punishing fun. They're punishing well, fun. Th- that, that's the issue, right? It's, it's not even about the adjudication of the rule. Like, it's a fun story within a story within a story. You want to layer these playoffs. It's nine weeks is a long time to keep people interested in basketball who aren't addicted to basketball the way you and I are. And, and I and like exactly you're, you're kind of you're just you're just kind of removing one of those layers needlessly. Like it's a fun little plot within a plot within a plot. Yeah, can't do it. Yeah. You know what? It's your rule. You chose not to enforce it. It's your fault. Either have the rule and enforce it or don't have the rule and let them take a nap at midcourt between free throws. Okay, back to Ben Simmons, who's 13 of 40 at the free throw line. Um, it, he's just, he rem- and, and Chris Vernon's point was the luxury of Embiid and to a lesser extent Tobias Harris, and in that game, Seth Curry, is that maybe Ben Simmons, it's not a problem that Ben Simmons took only three shots because it'll they, have, they can carry such a big offensive load, particularly Embiid, that he can just become Tony Allen, basically. Like, he can be that guy. And I think that's all well and good for this series. I don't think that's all well and good for the next round and the round after that that the Sixers want to get to. What have you seen from Simmons in, in this series and just sort of your general thoughts on the Philly ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, my critique of them early in the season, I think, on this podcast was what made me nervous about the Sixers was it just they lacked a number of really complex there aren't a lot of complete basketball players, right? There are a lot of guys who do a couple of things really well. And historically, that's been a tough way to win. I mean, the only team that consistently was able to overcome that in general were like the San Antonio Spurs, where you had, hey, that guy can't dribble. Doesn't matter. We won't ask him to. Oh, that guy can't shoot. Doesn't matter. We won't ask him to. And and to me, the Simmons thing isn't a problem in and of itself. Like, I'm actually with Chris on this in the sense that I, I don't, like, the what he can't do doesn't bother me. What what I do have a problem with in the context of this roster is who is the guard who is – we just talked about the Hawks and what makes that lineup dangerous with Herder and, and, and Bogdanovich and Young is you have three guys who can all operate offense um, creatively. And the question is, okay, but Danny Green can't dribble. Seth Curry plays a nice little dribble handoff game with Embiid, occasionally Harris, and, and like, okay, certainly great shooter, but like – I, look, I, at some point, there are possessions and games reduce themselves to certain conditions where it's like, put the ball in a guard's hand, high screen, what can you do with this? And if the answer is not a hell of a lot or there's no one really else or, well, Tobias kind of does that, Kevin. Well, I just don't know that gives you enough flexibility within the, within the confines of really good defenses. And Atlanta's becoming a pretty good defense. Actually, if you face, <laughs> you might not face a great defense until you get to the finals if, if you're Philly. But 
it becomes harder and harder. It's not so much what Simmons can't do. It's in exclusion of the other guys who also can't do it. And that's where it really concerns me so is they just point, don't have a lot of perimeter. They have no perimeter creation other than kind of Harris. So to your point, one of the things I love when Philly does is use Simmons as a ball screener. So if he's not going to be able to run pick and roll, if he's not going to be able to do these things, use him as a ball screener. They're not guarding him. So just be Draymond Green. You're 10 feet off me. I'm going to set a screen. And then he sets a screen for Seth Curry. And you're like, well, that's nice. Like Seth Curry just made a floater and shot along too. Like, that's so cool. What like, I don't – it's Seth Curry. Like, the guy was a sixth man or seventh man on the Mavs last year. It's like I, I – and then, okay, so do that for Tobias. Well, Tobias and Ben are very often defended by like-sized players, so teams will just switch that. And I just so, – so the other, the other Simmons stat that is really interesting, in the regular season, Ben Simmons ran 16 pick-and-rolls per 100 possessions. That's medium volume for a player like him. But it was like part of the deal. They would post him up, and Embiid would come screen for him on the block, and that was like a little funky pick-and-roll they could run. In the playoffs, he's running 7.5 pick-and-rolls per 100 possessions. That's like nothing. Against the Hawks through two games, he's run seven pick-and-rolls right. in the I, entire I, I watched series. All seven. Hell, you – I mean, if you're on a floor during an NBA playoff game, you can accidentally walk into six pick-and-rolls in two games. I mean, that's – that's, yeah, it, it, I – you know. And I, and I just think the pendulum at that point has swung too far to – He's just doing nothing in the dunker spot. And, you know, look, they make it work because Embiid is that good because he makes these balletic, is that balletic, balletic, whatever, ballet, three fading away Olajuwon post-up shots that are ridiculous. But you have Simmons in the dunker spot. Sometimes you have Thibel also on the floor. And to the Sixers' credit, the Thibel, Simmons, Embiid, trio, which feels like it shouldn't work because there's just not enough shooting around Embiid. It's been really good in the playoffs and the regular season. It just sometimes gets clunky. There was a possession in game two when Simmons had Lou Williams on him in the dunker spot. And they just didn't even look at him. They just screwed around and took a long two. And the other thing is, if he's going to guard Trey Young, right, they have the opportunity to get that matchup on the other end after stops. And that's what Ben did so well in the first round against Washington when they had all these little guards defending him the whole game. When they would get a stop, he would say, I've got a small guy on me. I'm going hard right in his face. And that's the way I want to see Ben Simmons hurt Trey Young. We keep talking about, well, these teams can't un Trey Young. The Knicks don't have the personnel. Danny Green is about as safe as hide a hiding place as it gets. You've run a couple of Danny Green actions. Like, if they get that matchup for a second in semi transition, Ben Simmons just has to bowl his ass over and get a dunk. I, yeah. I just feel like the pendulum has swung too far to Ben Simmons doing nothing, even with his defensive contributions, which are e enormous. I, I think there's some splitting of differences to do here. And, and one is, and they used to do this in the regular season. I haven't seen it a lot. It's sort of what I call the old Corey Maggette sets, right? Where, you know, maybe it's Harris, maybe it's, it doesn't matter who it is. Down screen for Ben comes flying up the corner, curling in, catching the ball on the move at the elbow and just going. No dribbles. Right, right to the hoop because he can catch, he can catch it ten feet on the go, and who the hell is going to stop that, right? And I think that's the sort of the sort of bowling ball plays, as I like to call them. I mean, McGetty was always great at running them when I used to watch a lot of their games, and and I I think that you know that has been done effectively for Ben Simmons in the past, and it's just get him the ball on the move, especially if it's not a transition game. I mean, obviously, look, 
if the Sixers can get really good stops on a regular basis, he is the single best accelerator of good defense into transition offense in the league outside of maybe Giannis, right? And he'll always be exceptionally useful in a game when that is happening. But I, I just think I'm with you. Like in the, it, it can't just be as you say, sitting in the dunker, you know, you know, hoping for something. They, they probably should precipitate a couple of things that are easy to do. And again, he's got decent hands. He can catch on the go. And once he catches on the go, there's nobody in that Hawks defense who's like going to do anything if, about it. If, if Least Charles of all Bark- John Collins. It, well, we should talk about John Collins. Um, if Charles Barkley is going to nickname Anthony Davis street clothes, which I didn't – I love Charles, but I didn't think that was nice yeah. or fair. I, like, I'm like. i surprised basketball reference has already not listed like dunker spot Benny as Ben Simmons' nickname. He's just there all the time doing nothing, which is – but it's not nothing because he can cut an offensive rebound and all that stuff. Anyway, um, the other thing about Philly is – you just – and game two was the perfect representation of this. I just I, – I never know what this bench is going to be. And Shake Milton's out of the rotation, then Shake Milton comes and saves their ass in game two with a flurry, a proverbial flurry, a plethora of crazy shots. And the other, I just, I don't know how you feel about this. I just, I just don't feel like George Hill has impacted their team nearly as much as I thought he would. And he's like a good player. He come, he, had, he blew up a DHO in game two with a beautiful steal and take coast to coast, a rake and take as they call it. Um, I just, I expected that Hill in place of Seth Curry lineup with the rest of the starters to be a bigger part of their team. I just, there's sometimes where I'm like, is George Hill out there? But maybe I'm just, uh, he, he's one of those guys who has like a sort of constant positive floating impact on the game so he can shoot and defend. And then you just don't know what you're going to get from this rigmarole of players. They went away, thank God, from the all bench mob lineup that got them killed in game one with using Tobias as the lone starter. Then sometimes that lineup still feels a little clunky. You know what the worst, you know what three players, what grouping of three players has the worst plus minus on the entire Sixers roster this season? Tobias Harris, Tobias Harris, Ben Simmons, and Dwight Howard. Any Simmons-Howard minutes can be dicey, and you throw to, like, that's the lineup you use when you're like, all right, we need a little more juice with this bench mob with Tobias. Let's bring Ben back in. It just doesn't work because Simmons plus Howard plus not enough creation is just, you just don't know what you're going to get out of these guys. But it seems like Doc presses the right buttons and, and they get a guy. They get a Korkmaz game or a Milton game or a Maxi game every night. Yeah, and uh, but, but it does belie the, the sort of general thing that you and I are talking about, which is I just worry about just the lack of perimeter shot creation in a league that just is relying on it at this point. It's just really hard to get away with it the way teams used to get away with it. You know, I mean, I know Memphis ran sort of the uh, the Tony Allen, Tayshawn Prince wing tandem uh, for many years. It, it just you, you have to have guys at the one. The three footage, position it feels this. like the footage of Tony Allen and Tayshawn Prince playing the two and the three together should be in black and white. It's just it like is. with like grainy film stuff over it. You know, and oh, by the way, like Zach Randolph's, you know, hanging out, you know, on the low post, like like the fact that they even scored 17 points a game. Was was remarkable given the spacing needs of the present gay game. It's. I would it's encourage Zach Randolph to come hang out on the low post. Come hang out with me, Zebo. Oh, um, I I picked um, I picked Sixers and seven, and that was sort of my. I don't think you picked the series uh, on. I don't pick. Game. I'm with Windhorse now. I don't do any of that crap. One might call you guys cowards. One might. I'm not sure. I would, but one might. Um, uh, 
I picked Sixers in seven, which was kind of my shoulder shrug of like, they're better, but I don't know what's going to happen with Embiid, so I'll just pick Sixers in seven. I still, if Embiid's healthy, I still think they're winning this series. I just think defensively they're too good and he's too dominant. But the Hawks have, it's really cool to see a young team discover a better version of itself when the lights are brightest. And, and they've really, they've really done that. And part of it is that they're healthy and they have all their pieces, but they're just, they're just playing better. Like they they have really risen to the moment and they are going to be a problem in the East for a long time. I mean, they're going to have to figure out their help defense situation against Embiid and they're also going to have to figure out the minutes that Trey is not on the floor um I, I I'm I'm not terribly comfortable with the Lou Williams sort of I, I'm secondary lineup you know? I, I'm just not there they're going to miss Hunter because now you're going to need more moments from moments from minutes from somebody you know maybe it's Tony Snell by the way did you know that Tony Snell had a 50 50 100 season in a th- nearly a thousand minutes yeah Tony Snell hasn't missed a free throw since 2019 I think I think that's, that's a real thing that is a real I thing. I like so I've come to trust the Lou Bogdanovich Herder Gallinari Capella or Collins non-trade lineup. Like, but but to me, you got to go with that lineup. You can't like the Snell stuff. I like the Congo stuff. I I want the A Trey Young lineup from the beginning of Trey Young's rest period. I can't believe Nate McMillan has the gumption. The gumption. He's playing Lou and Trey together, which is like. That's for forbidden fruit. You can't like he's. I don't even think for one second I didn't expect to see that. See, I feel like you don't. I, I'd almost rather have a little defense with if Herder and and Bogdanovich are going to be on that second unit. You've got enough playmaking, shooting. Um, get Lou off the floor. Uh, I, I'm sort of. I'm just not feeling it right now with him. I, I just think it, I didn't like it in the Knicks series. I don't like it now. Um, I, you know, I don't think you need somebody to go get you a bucket, whatever the hell that means. Um, by the way, Ngongo has done himself. I, I had That's a really fun. nice series against against New York, and I, I think, you know, only got a few minutes the other night. But I, I, he's somebody I can trust when Embiid's off the floor to completely hold down the interior. I'm, he's mobile. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm liking the future there. Yeah, he's he's going to be a good player. All right. Yeah. Um, that's enough Hawks Sixers. Mr. Arnovitz, um, uh, wrote a great piece two days ago. I think we talked about it on the jump about this new generation of stars that is is defining these playoff runs where you're going to be on Hawk Sixers big picture the rest of the way. And uh, I'm sure we will be talking soon. Kevin Armitz, thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part, each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats Rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, ooh, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code LOW. That's code LOW, L-O-W-E, my last name, the name of this podcast. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. For the ones who get it done! Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Now I'm very excited to bring in an absolutely tremendous writer and reporter who has been on this podcast before but is on it again because he just wrote a profile of the Brooklyn Nets super team and of Kevin Durant so good that it actually irritated me uh, as I read it. The author of Boomtown, one of my favorite books that I've read, period, in the last few years, 
from the New York Times Magazine, Sam Anderson. How are you? Hey, I'm great. Thank you so much. I'd love to hear that people are irritated, that other writers are irritated, because as a writer, that's always my highest compliment to someone else. Well, when you wrote that Kyrie Irving touches some of his spinning English layups off the backboard at the edge of the, the what did you say the edge of the coordinate grid the edge of possible on the coordinate grid the, co- the edge of the coordinate grid of the possible something like that yeah when i read that line the edge of the coordinate grid of the possible i actually closed my laptop for a second because i was so angry about how perfect <laughs> it was and that i could never write it so thank th- I, somewhere on the flight from new york to los angeles you made me angry and i needed to take a break oh that's so sweet thank you so, so you spent a lot of time with KD, uh, with whom I'm obsessed, and I wrote a kind of a profile of a few years back. Um, and so let's let's well, first of all, the the piece was it became I think more about Durant than you originally intended. Maybe is that true? That's absolutely true. Yeah, I, I you know I'm not a basketball writer, and I kind of was feeling burned out on writing about basketball. I wasn't even going to write about the Brooklyn Nets. I was in the bubble. I wrote about the bubble and. Another writer on staff was going to write about the Nets, and then he got yanked off into some other giant project, and they they dumped the the Nets in my lap and said, you write about this team. So I was like, all right, I'll go write about the super team. And uh, I went and I started going to all the Nets home games and, and was kind of instantly won over by the spectacle of this team on the floor. But as you know, as everyone in in NBA media knows, it's hard to write about these guys and teams right now. It's hard to get that color. You can't go on the floor. You can't go in the locker room. You have like, you know, 15-minute phone conversations uh, with players. And so I wasn't sure how it was going to turn out, what I was going to focus on. And then I reached out to KD through his kind of corporate arm. And fortunately, they were receptive and, and ended up letting me hang out for a day at his corporate headquarters at 35 Ventures. And, and, and we spent a couple of hours, just just me and him, talking about everything, talking about life, the meaning of life, and, and asteroids, and, and uh, Chesapeake Bay, and his childhood, and his first memory. And just like, you know, he just went KD for me. He just went super deep and open. It was great. Well, the, you open with asteroids and a particularly an asteroid creating what became sort of a crater of sea life and eventually human life around where Kevin Durant grew up. And as I'm reading the first 300 words about an asteroid, I'm thinking, well, this is a choice. Where the hell is this? Where the hell is this going? And as you read the piece, now I'm, I'm going to take a guess at why you did that. As you read the piece, the sort of running theme of it is that Kevin Durant seems to you like an elemental force of basketball, like something that is something, someone that because of his height, his size, his skills, the way he thinks about and approaches the game was sort of just is just like some sort of elemental basketball force as if the gods created something, a a, a power that would break the game or represent the game and and the power took on a human form and it's Kevin Durant, which I think is actually he there is something just elemental about his height and his ability and his greatness. Is that sort of the the idea? Yeah, that's definitely folded into it. Um, and I remember having that. Pe- you know, I wrote Boomtown, as you mentioned. So I hung around Oklahoma City in the earlier part of Durant's career. And I've seen him just forever. I've seen him in many different contexts and you kind of get used to him. And he's kind of an easy player to take for granted in a certain way, because it does look so easy for him. 
And um, I was really overwhelmed with what you were just describing, that sort of elemental feeling about him. When I was going to all these Nets games and I'm waiting to see the big three and the big three is never playing together and Durant's out um, with this calf injury forever. And then finally, you remember that weird game when he came back and they didn't bring him back until like he, we, they pulled him from the starting lineup just before the game. And then he didn't come out in the first quarter. He didn't come out like halfway through the second. And I'm like, I went to one of the Nets PR guys and I'm like, uh, you want to comment on what's going on here? He's like, what are you talking about? This is normal. I'm like, this is not normal what's happening. And, and finally he comes into the game and he'd been gone for so long and We'd seen every other player on the roster almost on the floor before him. And then suddenly this presence just checks into the game. And I was just like, holy crap. The way he moved, um, just his, his unmistakable posture and carriage and just like the angle he holds his head at. And of course, that incredibly distinctive shooting stroke. Everything about him is just so distinctive. And that's the word that struck me right away. It was just elemental. There's something different about this guy on the floor than about the other guys on the floor. Um, so, yeah. So, so it, and then the second part of the, the asteroid thing is just like, you know, he's been profiled and written about really well by a lot of different people, yourself included. And he's been interviewed very deeply by Bill Simmons and others. And, and the guy just like has this kind of existentialist wide open wandering mind. And I just, I started reading about the history of where he came from. Cause I was like, what can I add to this portrait of this guy who everybody knows and has seen for so many years? And I thought, well, I can put him in the context of history. And the way I kind of framed the question to myself was like, if, if American history is speaking through Kevin Durant to us, what is it, what is it saying to us? And so I was like, let's go back, not just to his childhood, but to the formation of the place he came from. What is this, you know, Prince George's County, Maryland? What's, what's the deal with this place? And I started just going back further and further and just stumbled in that reading across this 35 million year old asteroid that hit. And I just thought, I bet, I bet Kevin Durant would get a kick out of that story. I wonder if he knows about that. And so I mentioned it to him very early on in our conversation. And I would have, I would have thrown it aside if he hadn't responded, but he really responded. He was into the asteroid story. Like that kind of blew his mind. So, you know, you know, how it goes with writing. You're kind of, you're kind of searching around for where to start. And I just, at some point I just said to myself, I said, okay, God damn it. Let's start with the asteroid. And that was the opening line for a long time. I changed it to, okay, why not? later but uh that's how it happened um he's an endlessly fascinating human being and basketball player and we'll talk about both those things but let me just dumb the discussion down for you for everyone real fast um i am fascinated by so you you're in the office with him i'm picturing kd just laying on a couch i'm picking picturing like a college dorm room you know spitballing session i mm -hmm. have to know when you asked him to see his Twitter mentions. Yeah. What was, what was his face like? Was there ever a moment where it looked like he might say, yeah, he says, no, you mm. cannot see my, but wh why did you ask that question? And I just, I need to picture his reaction to the question. <laughs> yeah. I was excited to ask that question. You know, one of the, one of the kind of fantasy interview questions I had was like, if he if he had showed me his Twitter mentions, let me get in there. I'd be like, can we send a tweet like in real time? I just want to see what this is like to be in that world. I mean, I asked because obviously he's had a, a few major kind of controversies on Twitter. 
he lives in a certain way on Twitter. He kind of performs for people on Twitter. Twitter is such a huge part of the modern athlete's life. You know, it's like, it's in, in a way, like, you know, we go, we ask where they're from, we ask where they live, but many of them live inside of social media to a large extent. So I wanted to see, like, give me a tour of that world in there. Like, what does it look like? And it's, cr I just imagine it's crushing to be in there, to, to have 19 million followers and all of them yelling at you or wanting to be your friend or whatever. So I just figured I'd ask. Um, and we were at a point, we were pretty deep into the conversation and he was super relaxed and he was kind of up for anything. So we had just like compared lock screens on our phone. And then I was like, hey, can I look at your Twitter mentions? And he immediately said, nah, <laughs> he said, nah, but then he just started describing them for me. Um, well, he has then, a great quote in there when he talks about why he interacts with with people who are just nasty, um, mm -hmm. like why waste any mental energy? And he says, you know, talks a little bit about, it and he says, at, at the end of the day, we're equals. Mm -hmm. And and once they see that, the discussion changes. And I, I, you know, it's an obvious thing, right? Like we're all human beings. We're all, you know, um, we're all we're all really at base level. We're all dealing with the same stuff. I mean, that's why Kevin is so interesting is because he's dealing with very human issues. You know, he's, he's, he's flashed a certain insecurity and obsession with what people are saying about him that is very relatable to regular people. But I, we're not really equals. Like Kevin Durant isn't equal to me or equal to you. He's a world famous superstar with a gazillion dollars. But you do get, the, I, 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 I'm guessing in person, certainly coming through and reading and having talked a little bit with him over the years, you do get the sense that he really that's a he really feels that on a deep profound level. He's not putting on a show. He's not just saying that. He's not trying to impress people, impress watchers of him by like, "Oh, look how kind he is to these people who are mean to him. What a great guy." I think there's something in him that really believes that. I assume that came across when he, when he said that to you, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I would argue, you know, that is just true. I mean, you're right. We're not on a, the equal level with Kevin Durant. If you're thinking in terms of super fame and Twitter followers and our bank accounts and our basketball skills, but I would argue, and I think Kevin would probably argue that those things aren't fundamental to who we are. And so we are in fact equal to him. Um, yeah, it's a real deep, I mean, we talked about, uh, my favorite novelist, Dostoevsky, the 19th century Russian novelist, uh, who, uh, who is my lock screen on my phone. And he's like, who's that guy with a giant beard? And um, I told him why I like Dostoevsky. And it was for those reasons, because you, the full complexity of human experience kind of unites us all, you know, whether you're famous or not famous, whether you're great at something or not great at something. I, I think he really believes that. You talk a lot in the story about the modern super team and how the super team is not a new phenomenon. You know, we grew up watching basketball in the 80s, which were dominated by super teams. What's new is who put them together and how they were put together. And the players are now in control of the process of where they go and who they play with and tag teaming up. And obviously the Nets symbolize that just as the LeBron James Heat symbolize that. Um, and I wonder, you mentioned um, Kevin Durant's tweet from way back in the day, I think it was 2012, when he's just fed up with the, with the players teaming up together and he tweets – you know, does everyone want to play for Miami and the Lakers? Like, whatever happened? I don't exactly remember what the tweet is. Like, whatever happened to guys doing it, doing it their own way or whatever? Right. Did Did you ask him about that tweet? And if, I didn't. If he, no. no, I didn't. I didn't. The funny thing about that tweet is, 
there was another round of that tweet when, of course, everyone brings that up all the time. Um, and I remember somebody brought it up when he went <laughs> to Golden State. And they're like, yeah, who's on the super team now? He's like, I said LA and Miami. Like, that's why I went to Golden State. <laughs> I was like, all right, buddy. He has a very, um, he, he's got a quick mind and he has ways of like reframing arguments to, to make himself uh, look good sometimes. That's part of his complexity is, is he is, I think he really, he really cares what people say about him. In some ways he tries not to care, but I think he does. And he wants people to think well of him. Um, and uh, yeah, I, used to, I had a long paragraph about all the many sides of him in there that I think got cut out. But but I think he's kind of like this incredible open book. But a lot of the chapters are sort of blacked out. And he'd prefer it if you didn't maybe look at chapter 7. And uh, there were some things he didn't really want me to get into in the article. And so he's just a fascinating guy. Um, let's talk about the Warriors because, you know, the decision to join the Warriors was his decision. He can do whatever he wants. And it is the decision that I think has defined the discourse about him and will forever because of how good the team was and how unbeatable they were once he joined there. Now, that said, they only won two championships instead of three, and they barely got past the conference finals in the second one, but be that as it may. Um, I, I wrote about him at the end of the 2018 finals, so at the end of his second year with the Warriors, and I was struck by... That year was, was, I think, difficult for him. And Steve Nash, who's now the coach of the Nets, and one of the reasons he's the coach of the Nets is he has a great relationship with Kevin dating to his days as a consultant for the Warriors. He talks about his summer workouts with KD. And after the summer of 2017, when he wins the title for the first time and he wins the finals MVP, he's not good in the workouts that summer with Steve Nash. He doesn't come as much. He's not into it he seems depressed. And Steve told me that they talked about how he thought a championship would fulfill me, would satisfy me in, in ways that instead it, it did not at all fulfill him. And, and I think uh, Steve's telling was, it seemed to sink him, the, the realization that it hadn't changed his life the way that he thought seemed to send him into a little bit of a funk. And that whole season, he was in a funk to the point that Steve Kerr contacted him in, in in the middle of the season when they were in Portland, I think, and said, hey, man, something's wrong. Like, we need to go to lunch and talk about it. Like, you're not talking to people. You're disconnected. And and and, and not only that, in, in the piece I wrote about him at the time, he says this. He says, I, I mean, I, and I remember exactly where he was when he said this over the phone. I mean, I, I'm crazy about winning. Don't get me wrong. I'm just not obsessed with winning championships. It's not the only reason I play. I play for my individual growth. A lot of players, if they said, you know, I like to win, like, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm just not obsessed with winning championships, they would be cast as caring about the wrong stuff, as, well, they're not wired the way the, the killers of the old age or Kobe Bryant, these guys are just win at all costs. He just comes out and says that, like, that's a big quote, and no one cares because it's kind of just like, well, he's just wired differently. I, I, I don't even have a question. I just like that time in his that time in his life when he's won the first championship and he's not satisfied, he's not happy, and he verbalizes it like I don't really play for that reason. It does add to this idea that he's playing for purer, more elemental reasons. Did you talk to him at all about that period where he where he's going through this like 
I thought winning would do something for me that it didn't. We didn't get into that, um, partly because I had read about it uh, in your piece and, and heard people talk about it, and it just didn't come up. But but that is like that is so humanizing and and makes me like have such affection for him. And I think it's really a powerful thing. I think our, our culture is so addicted to certain like cartoonish ideas about success. Um, and in sports, those play out in all kinds of gross, uh, toxic ways about masculinity and toughness and all this. And, and, um, I think it's really powerful when someone of his status admits that, uh, he wasn't just like over the moon fulfilled, like the cartoon version of you is supposed to be when you have some kind of external success. I think almost all of us can relate to that. Anyone who's, who's, you know, gotten their dream job and then realized, oh man, I still got all these issues and now I'm more depressed than ever. Like, like, I mean, that's just kind of an eternal story. So it was really exciting to me when I read that and that, that made me forgive him for how mad I was when he left Oklahoma city. Um, cause I was one of those people, <laughs> uh, cause I, I just had so many, you know, contacts. You and, were, and you weren't the guy dressed up as the cupcake when he, when he came back. That wasn't you, was it? Remember no, that, that guy who me. had the full cup, the full <laughs> cupcake costume on? No, I, I like to think I was never like mean to him about it, but I was internally, I was just like, how could you do that? Did you talk, did you talk about that? How you felt? I didn't. I've heard him talk to people about that. I've heard him talk to Bill Simmons about that, and he's kind of laughing about it. Like, Bill, you were one of those guys? Um, I talked to his mom about it. She told me that I, I love Wanda so much. I had such a great talk with her down in Maryland. And, and she told me that she hoped that he wouldn't leave Oklahoma City. She thought he should stay. Because they had, like, built, literally built that city up. There were, there were skyscrapers downtown that would not exist had Kevin Durant not played for the Thunder. Um... And uh, so, you know, I think a million different feelings about but, that are valid. But I, I was pretty mad at the time and disappointed and et cetera, et cetera. But after spending a couple hours talking to him now and getting what felt like real insight into who he is and how he looks at the world, in retrospect, that was crazy to think that he was going to stay in Oklahoma City. I don't think he's going to stay anywhere. I think he's going to end up playing on Mars Um in some basketball league in outer space. Like, I think that man is just going to search to all ends of the universe for what he's looking for. And, 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 and again, in the piece, I, I try to hit this almost like religious note because his mind kept doing this thing when we talked where he would like kind of rise up above the conversation and above our little tiny perspectives where we see all these, you know, distinctions between things. He's like, like the whole super team question. He's like, we're all in one league. Like we're all pulling together in this league, trying to expand the league and, and make it a globally successful thing. And front offices are stealing each other's, you know, best people all the time. And why is it such a huge deal when, when the players actually decide to play together with, with the, the best teammates? Um, so he's just got this kind of big mind that wants to see everything and go everywhere and sees everything is connected. It's interesting you think he's going to keep moving because to me, the Nets, these Nets, hashtag these Nets, <laughs> feel like a logical endpoint to his career. Even though his mm. career is obviously, he's, what is he, 31 years old? I mean, he's not old, 32, 32. whatever he is, 32. Like, he's got a lot of years left. They feel like a logical endpoint to me because he helped create them, mm -hmm. right? Um, they're in a big city where he can, where he can, you know, uh, address all his business needs and all that. 
but they're not the team. Mm-hmm. So the scrutiny of them will never be the way it, it would be if he and Kyrie had gone to the Knicks. Mm-hmm. And basketball-wise, and this is why he's so interesting to me, he's a completely unprecedented player in the whole history of the game in many ways. And one of them, and we can argue about whether it's totally unprecedented, but this is why I wrote this piece, because my piece in 2018, because I was so obsessed with figuring out what he is. He is the best player ever. He is the best amplifier of other superstar players, I mm-hmm. think, in the, history, in the history of basketball. And he is that because he is an incredibly unusual player in that he can be the best player on every team he plays for, and he is never or rarely the number one ball handling option on that team. From right. Russ to Steph slash Draymond to Kyrie and Harden, he is this sort of like, it's, it's very strange to sort of say out loud, He's the best player and the second option a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. He's like a Pippin who is also a Jordan. And, and we we all know why, because he can he can be anything you want him to be because of his size and his shooting and his skill. On one possession, he can be Anthony Davis screening and diving to the rim for a dunk. On another possession, he can be Ray Allen coming off a pin down and hitting a three. On another possession, he can be James Harden, like what he's been so far in this series, which, by the way, resumes tonight. And knowing my luck, Kevin Durant will go 0 for 50 and the Nets will (laughs) lose. And people will be like, why are we talking about Kevin Durant? He's been that in this series as a pick and roll ball handler. He can be everything at all times. But because of that, he is the best amplifier of other players. There are no diminishing returns when you plop Kevin Durant onto a team with other superstars because he could be Dirk Nowitzki on one position. Like he, he, and when I talk to Warriors players about that and I talk to some of the old heads on their team back in the day, like who, who else could sort of fit that description in the history of the NBA? And the name that came kept coming back was Larry Bird. Like Sean Livingston brought up Larry Bird as sort of like the other great amplifier of superstar teammates who kind of do everything and be everything, but they're not, they're not really that's similar. And he, he there's just, I, I just don't think there's ever been a player like him ever. And when people say that it's usually about his height and all that stuff, it's just, he's just different. And that's why the Nets, the Nets feel like the perfect end game for him because he can be that player alongside two other guys who absolutely dominate the ball almost all the time. Kyrie less so this season to his credit, but Harden is the most ball dominant player in the history of basketball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. But you know how fast things change in the NBA. What what do the Nets look like two years from now, three years from now? Um, so yeah, I could totally see him staying, but but I would I would put money on him going somewhere else eventually. I'm just fascinated by the archetype that archetype of player, and I asked him about that um, when when I wrote that piece. You know, I asked him, I asked him, and I asked the Warriors coaches like, what would it be like if he just was James Harden? Like, what kind of numbers would he put up? How good would the team be? And we've seen that in bits and pieces like the Slim Reaper era when Russ was hurt and he mm-hmm. just went crazy that season. Yeah. And, he, and he said to me, obviously it would be cool to have the ball in my hands the whole game and rack up numbers. I can do that. But for me to utilize the full body of my talent talents, I can't do that. I don't have the energy physically to do that and still defend on the perimeter and block shots and rebounds. You just don't see or hear one of the 15, and I think he's going to go down as one of the five or ten greatest players of all time, one of the ten you know, greatest players of all time. You don't hear them say, I can't, ever, 
about right. anything. Right. You just don't hear those words, and I just, it's just so striking to me. I did, what did I mean? You wrote a lot about the nature of his game. Like, what were the basketball conversations like? We didn't get into basketball very much, honestly, in those couple of hours. Um, no, it was it was it was much more about his childhood, about his kind of emotional, psychological makeup, which to me really is about basketball. I mean, I think that's why basketball is the greatest game I've ever encountered is because of the sort of nakedness of it in that you can see the personalities of people manifesting themselves on the floor in the in the smallest little decisions, whether somebody drives into a crowd of defenders or passes off or pulls back or whatever, whether someone looks scared to go into the free throw line. You know, it's it's all this it's this incredible theater of psychology. Um, and like you were saying, I always think the the kind of um, thought experiment I always love to do was like put Russell Westbrook's brain into Kevin Durant's body. And what kind of player do you have? I think you have the number one greatest player of all time and the, the most I mean, or put Kobe's brain in Kevin Durant's body. And you just have this like unreasonably, you know, aggressive charging guy who's so giant. Um, what do you think about that thought experiment? Would that be the greatest player ever, Russell Westbrook in Kevin Durant's body? It'd be pretty damn close. I mean, that's what that's what I'm getting at, and that's yeah. why he's such a fascinating. So let let's talk about the his childhood and the psychology of it. I mean, what what so what's on the cutting room floor from that? You know, you mentioned to me offline like there's some great stuff on the cutting room floor. I don't know what it what it is there, but what are some of the highlights in that regard? Yeah, I mean. Um, as you can see reading the piece, like we went pretty deep. I asked him my favorite interview question ever, which is what is your first memory? Um, and he was perfectly willing to go there. Um, a lot of stuff about just uh, like things we've been talking about, the emotional complexity of being a kid who grew up in a very poor area of the country from which you can literally see the the kind of grand you know, stone palaces of Washington, D.C., where the laws are made, um, a majority black community, and being this kind of shy, quiet, emotional, empathetic kid um, and trying to navigate that world and find something to cling on to. Um, and his mom talked to me a lot about that, too, and about, you know, his kind of, his kind of negotiating being a good kid back then uh, with trying to explore the world and kind of getting in trouble um, and staying out of trouble because he didn't want to burden his mother who was, who was, you know, fighting for her life to raise her family. And so he made all these choices not to get in, not to get in trouble. And there are a couple of times that, he did get in trouble. He stole a, he stole a dollar out of a tip jar at a pizza place once because a bunch of his friends did it again. This is like the mirroring thing, a bunch of kids on his basketball team, like the pizza guy went back for a second and they started taking money out and he took it out and was the last one. And he got busted. He was the one who got in trouble. And, and he said, if he hadn't had basketball, like he really thought, you know, his dream was to end up coaching at the rec center in basketball. And if that hadn't worked out, he didn't know what it actually, he said he did know what would have happened. He said, um, you know, I was a watchful kid who followed what the people around me did. I was surrounded by older kids and there were a lot of drugs and a lot of crime in the neighborhood. And he absolutely would have gone down that road. And he seemed very certain about that. His mother had some things to say about how that she would not have let that happen. But um, one of the things 
that one of the details that sort of blazed into my brain from your story was Kevin talks about withdrawing in terms of I didn't want to talk to my mother about any stress that I had in my life because she was already so stressed out I didn't want to add to it. And just sort of what that does when you keep those things inside or don't have an outlet for it. I thought that was a really revealing detail. Did he talk any more about, about that? Or what, when, when he said that, did a light bulb kind of go off in your head? Because that was a very, again, relatable kid thing that is revealing, I think, of a certain emotional depth of a young, for, for a young kid. Like, I don't remember thinking those that deeply necessarily about my parents um, who, you know, I grew up in a different background, obviously, but I thought, I thought that was a very revealing little tidbit. Yeah, I, I really identified it. I think with it, those of us who grew up in, you know, families of divorce and with, with a lot of um, moving around and kind of a lack of structure, like you, you become very cognizant of how the people who are taking care of you feel and you don't want to add anything to that. And so I think he, he took a lot of that of those emotions that he kind of stuffed down and he let them out in basketball. He's talked a lot about like how on the court, he's kind of a big jerk. He's a trash talker. Uh, and other players will tell you that. Um, so I think a lot of it came out there. Basketball was this kind of safe space where, where he could express himself. Uh, and it took him a long time, I think, uh, in deep into his twenties to kind of realize that there was a world outside of basketball where he could also sort of be himself and, and actually let things back out. And a lot of the controversy and stuff that's come out, I think is, is, Kevin Durant kind of letting out some of the more negative things that he used to really police in himself because he didn't want to didn't want to cause a ruckus and now he causes a much bigger ruckus on a on a big crazy public stage. Uh, before we let you go, any other cutting room floor details that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I mean, well, because the story really started about being about the Nets and a lot of that stuff got squished out. So I did all kinds of interviews that I didn't didn't really get to use. You know, I talked to. I became obsessed, as I think the whole world did, uh, in the middle of that net season with James Harden, and just like the the question, like what is James Harden and how does he do this? I, and I wanted to find someone to like explain to me the physics of James Harden. So I, I called um, this trainer that he works with in the summers in Houston, this guy Justin Allen, and I was asking him. My question was just like, is there? is there one like exercise or one metric or something that James Harden just crushes? Like, does he have the strongest left thigh you've ever measured in your life? And he was like, Nope. I mean, there's, he's not beaten. He's not setting records in explosion or in speed or strength or any, I mean, he's strong as hell, but, but no, he said the one thing that stood out to him, um, was that James Harden is basically impossible to confuse. Uh, he does these intentionally tricky ladder drills um, where he's essentially trying to make athletes fall over and trip over their feet. And he's changing the steps they do every few squares and and just throwing random stuff out. And he said, you might get James once at the beginning of a drill. And then once he understands the parameters, you will never fool him again. And he's unique in that. Uh, he's never seen another another athlete be able to process information coming at him that fast and translate it into physical reality, which is obviously what we see James Harden doing out on the floor all the time. You know, you drive into a crowd of defenders and you can almost see like the decision tree branching out in front of him. Like I could go left, I could go right. I could lob it at this moment. I could wait till this defender steps over here. And just like, he's just quicker to make those, to hit those little, those little 
points in the decision tree than anyone else on the floor. So oh, that was cool. And I talked to Nash about that. Um, and Nash was like, yeah, that's where James and I really understand each other is like that processing speed. And I asked Nash, I remember like, can you, is there any way you can put that superpower into words for just a dope like me? Um, and he said, no, it would be total, it'd be total BS. If I tried to do it for you, you just have it or you don't James Harden has it. I asked, and I talked to Joe Harris and I was like, we were talking about this same thing. And I was like, do you have that at all? He's like, if I had that, I would be James Harden. No, my reads are like read and react. It's like, do I shoot this or do I not shoot this? And so I thought that was, that was really interesting and kind of helped me understand Harden. Alex Schiffer, who, who does the Nets beat for the athletic wrote a really good piece about this. Uh, where he talked to Justin Allen too. And he talked to actually James Harden's Halo buddies about how his special brain kind of controls the map of Halo in the same way that he controls the the floor on a basketball court. Well, control is an interesting word because when you talk to people with the Rockets who were around Harden for years and years, they say, yes, he's a, he's a genius spatially, just the way you described. And obviously his tricks of footwork and he's, he's out thinking teams from one step, two steps ahead. You know, he's manipulating layers of defense with every little mm -hmm. jab and feint. But control was a word that came up about Harden a lot in that he likes to slow down and you stand there and you stand there and Capella, I want you on the dunker spot over here. Mm -hmm. He's less improvisate. His genius is a little less improvisational than I think even some of the Houston coaches would have liked a little more flow. But James likes to know the setup <laughs> of the floor, set it up to his choosing and then attack from there. And from there, yes, he knows all the reads and he can sort of improvise which read he chooses. But they, it, it was an interesting thing because he is a genius and yet the level of control he wants to exercise on the map of the floor before he goes is, I think, unusual for a player of his caliber. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. One of my other favorite things that reminded me of was um, Steve Nash and I were talking about this. And, and I was saying, so... I notice Harden is, let's say he's, let's say he's very vocal out there on the floor, right? With his teammates, he's always, something goes wrong or even something goes right. And right afterwards, he's on top of the nearest teammate and he's gesticulating wildly and he's shouting and he's coaching them. And uh, it's just constant. And I was like, how much of that is the guy in the pickup game who is blaming you for his bad pass that he just threw? And how much of that is, holy crap, this guy is literally a genius. He's explaining the last seven plays to me like 12 layers deep, and he's exactly right. And Nash kind of thought about it and laughed a little bit and said, it's some of both. I asked Joe Harris the same question, and he said, yeah, I think it's a mix of those two things. <laughs> I love I thought it. that was really funny. Well, the piece is headlined. Let me read the headline. We, we were joking about that earlier. It, it's in the New York Times Magazine from last week. LeBron, uh, Kevin Durant, LeBron James. Okay, there you go. Wow. <laughs> that was a good Freudian slip. Kevin Durant and parentheses, possibly and parentheses, the greatest basketball team of all time. The Brooklyn Nets were built to be an unbeatable super team of eccentric basketball superstars. Will they dominate the playoffs? Going into tonight's game three against Milwaukee, uh, the answer is certainly been yes. The piece is tremendous. Print it out. Get the paper magazine. Sit back in an armchair. Do it old school and give it a read. And last thing. By Boomtown. Boomtown, which is about the Thunder and uh, centering sort of around the Harden trade in that era and the history of Oklahoma City is just a beautiful 
wonderful, fantastic book. And the greatest compliment I can give it, as I said to you when I had you on, the half of it that is about, and it's it's interspersed. It's not the first half, it's the thunder. The second half is the history of Oklahoma City. The half of it that is about the history of Oklahoma City is just as fascinating, if not more so, to the basketball fan reader in me who really picked it up to read about the Thunder as the Thunder parts are. It is an absolutely gorgeous, beautiful book. Everyone go to Amazon and buy Boomtown. It's beautiful. Sam Anderson, thank you very much. It's wonderful to see your face. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.